0: The range was a great experience. I met a lot of uh, really amazing people and leaders, but there were some rough nights on the range. That's what people don't talk about.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Would you like to talk about them, Malcolm?
0: (laughs) This is going to turn into a therapy session. (laughs)
1: Hello, everyone. I'm Jim Ryan, president of the University of Virginia, and I'd like to welcome all of you back to another season of Inside UVA. This podcast is a chance for me to speak with some of the amazing people in the university community and to learn more about what they do and who they are. My hope is that listeners will ultimately have a better understanding of the university and a deeper appreciation of the remarkably talented and dedicated people who make UVA the institution it is. I'm thrilled to be joined today by Malcolm Brogdon, who is a professional basketball player, activist, philanthropist, and leader. He plays for the Boston Celtics, where last season he was named Sixth Man of the Year. Before this, Malcolm played for the Indiana Pacers, and before that, the Milwaukee Bucks, where he was Rookie of the Year. Malcolm is also busy off the court. He's involved in the National Basketball Players Association, where he steers collective bargaining efforts, and he founded several nonprofits dedicated to educational gender And health equity malcolm as many of you know is a double who he earned a bachelor's degree in history a master's in public policy and he was awarded the 2016 ernest h earn distinguished student award his virginia basketball number number 15 has been retired and hangs from the rafters inside the john paul jones arena malcolm personifies what it means to excel and to lead or in other words to be both great and good and today we are incredibly fortunate to have him on the podcast, Malcolm. Thank you for being here.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: So, tell me a little bit about what off season looks like for a national basketball player.
0: I think a lot of people, you know, assume we we might be moving all over the place and maybe doing a lot, uh, but really, it's it's very uh, calm. It's really a time for me personally to reconnect with my family, uh, to be around friends. Um, some guys stay in their market cities that for the team they play for, but usually that tends to be younger players. And then, as you get older in the NBA and you become a vet, uh, you you go back home. You go back to wherever your your home base is, your family. Um, and for me, that's Atlanta. Um, I have a I have a house here. My wife, my my two daughters, we come back to Atlanta. I get to you know be with my family. I get to be with my friends, and you know just be back in a familiar place that I that I call home.
1: So you mentioned your family. I understand that your worldview was shaped um, in in significant part by your parents, and I wonder if you could talk about them a little.
0: Absolutely. Uh, you know, my my parents met at Oberlin College, um, liberal arts school uh, in, in the Midwest, and then you know ended up getting married. Uh, both of them went to Indiana University. My dad got his law degree there. My mom got a PhD in psychology, and. Uh, You know, I think since since day one, just education, um, getting accelerated degrees, excelling in the classroom has always been one of the the best things that my parents have handed down to me and my two older brothers. Um, My two older brothers are attorneys here in Atlanta, and for me, you know, coming out of high school, it was important that I get a good education in college. Basketball was something that I was really pursuing that my mom you know, always uh, was a a thousand percent behind me, driving me to all my AU practices, really just supporting me through everything. But um, at the same time, it was you have to have at least to be average in the classroom or, you know, you won't be doing any of these other any of these other things.
1: So that's related to my next question, which is how did you end up at the University of Virginia? I'm assuming you're going to say because of the great combination of athletics and academics.
0: That's, that's, uh, I think that's a great assumption. I, you know, UVA wasn't a school that was on my radar, you know, as Mm. a, as a basketball player growing up in the South, you hear about Florida had a very, very good team when I was in middle school, high school had players like Al Horford. I mean, they had a lot of NBA players coming out. Um, but you hear about Vanderbilt, you hear about some of the really excellent academic schools. UVA wasn't on my radar. I didn't know a lot about UVA. Um, of course, you know, about UNC and Duke, but Tony Bennett ended up coming to one of my games uh, my my junior year uh, AAU and ended up offering me a scholarship, really pursuing me. And once I looked into it, my mom had a, had a very good um, knowledge, you know, surrounding the university and, and understood um, how excellent it was academically. And once I got privy to that, and I understood who Tony Bennett was as a person and right. how he was rebuilding this program and how I could be one of the building blocks behind that and a part of that, it was really a no-brainer for me. I I had five official visits set up. Virginia was my first one. Vanderbilt was my second. And then I think uh, maybe Notre Dame was my third and then two others. And I came on my official to UVA, and I think I, I went home the next day and, and committed on the spot, called Coach Bennett and, and committed to the university. So no kidding. Um, it was always UVA.
1: Remind me what year this was. So this was was this pretty early on in Tony's tenure then, right?
0: It was. This was Tony's um, second or third year. I was I was his second recruiting class oh. at UVA. Joe Harris was his first. So I, you know, I knew I, I, I understood all that coming out of high school. Um, I understood I could go to Vanderbilt with, with Coach Stallings and be a part of something that had already, you know, a well oiled machine. But I knew UVA. They were rebuilding, and I could be a part of that and possibly be a part of something special.
1: And you had great success when you were here and and could have left after your fourth year to go pro, but you decided to come back for another year. Um, what motivated that decision?
0: Uh, my mom. Uh, you know, my mom has always been my biggest influence, my biggest supporter, really has, has, has meant the world to me. I think, you know, for me, education, it was huge in college. You know, I, I wanted to do well in the classroom. I had already committed to the Baton School. I had already finished, you know, the first year of the of the public policy program. For me, I, I m- remember thinking I can go to the NBA, but I will be a second round draft pick, and or, or you know, undrafted, or I could come back and finish my public policy degree, and um, you know, hopefully, you know, rot, you know, help my stock go up, possibly be a first round pick, and you know, Tony Bennett always he sold me the dream, and it wasn't just a dream; it became a reality. He told me when I was really considering that, he said, of course, he wanted me back. But he said, uh, you know, you can have it all. You, you don't have to go to the NBA right now. Right. You can come back. You can mm-hmm. finish your degree. You can finish what you started. But you can also finish your career here and and, and go down as one of the great UVA players and, and people that have come through the university um, and still go to the NBA. The NBA is not going anywhere. So I really I really took his advice. I thought he really was a great mentor in that process. And, um, you know, I stayed another year and it was it was everything I wanted it to be.
1: Yeah, well, it seemed like a really smart decision in retrospect.
0: Yeah, I, I thought it worked out. Um, you know, a lot of guys in that position end up leaving. You see guys, you know, did it before me, guys still doing it. Some guys leave early and they yeah. leave too early. and right. they, You know, they end up overseas or they end up, you know, not playing basketball because it, it was just not a great move. And then there are guys that leave early and it works out. But, you know, I wanted to, you know, finish my education. I wanted to give myself the best foundation as possible by by finishing what i started at uva
1: you mentioned tony bennett as a mentor other mentors stick out to you during your time at uva uh
0: richie mckay who was there uh my he wasn't there my last year at uva but he was there my first four years at uva um, he was a he was the head assistant under tony bennett was a huge mentor for me um someone that always encouraged me on the court someone that always told me i could be an nba player and, and encouraged me to to really just be who I was and be confident in who I was. As far as in the, that, I, I think he was probably the main one that I think was a was a was a very positive mentor for me.
1: Right. So many people, with good reason, look to you to be a leader. And I'm curious, when you look around, who are your role models um, as leaders? Who do you look up to? Who influenced you in that respect?
0: I, I have a shirt on right now. Um, uh, Muhammad Ali, uh, formerly known as Cassius Clay, is one of my you know biggest heroes. Just he stood up for what he believed in. Um, he was unapologetically you know uh, black and himself. He didn't he didn't care what people thought about him, and he cared he cared and loved people. You know no matter what color you were, he cared about you. He loved you. He wanted to see everybody do well. Outside of that, really, it's my mom. Um, I think the way she raised me and my brothers. Uh, really sacrificing everything. My mom was working a full-time uh, job at Morehouse College in Atlanta, being a, a full-time professor and then a, and then a dean and then a provost. And, you know, she moved her way up in the ranks and now she's tenured. But, man, she grinded um, just, to, just to see me and my brothers do well, um, you know, doing everything she could to, to put us in the best situation possible.
1: So talk a little bit about being the sixth man. What attracted you, Did was that role attractive to you? And and if so, um, why? And for those who are listening who don't know, Malcolm was the sixth man of the year um, for the Celtics. And as I understand it, you were brought on with that role in mind. Was it a hard decision for you to, to take on that role? Or was, was it something you were looking forward to?
0: Well, you know, I, I, I was definitely coming from a situation in Indiana with the Pacers where we had not, they, they were in the process of rebuilding. Um, The team was getting younger. Um, The guys that I've played alongside the previous three years had, had been traded away. I was one of the few remaining veterans on the team. I knew Boston would be a place that I could win. You know, I had a few options, but Boston stuck out to me because of the winning culture, because of how the fans and the people there love the Celtics and love basketball. And then, you know, they have, you know, as many banners as, as the Lakers, they have the most in the NBA. So the culture there and the winning culture is really what I wanted to be a part of. But initially when, brad stevens uh registered interest in me brad stevens is the president of the boston celtics it was you know we we love malcolm we think he'd fit in really well here he'd be a great addition to help us get over that you know that hump and help us win another a championship but we have a great core here we have a great you know set of, a group of guys and we have great chemistry he's going to have to come off the bench and for me that was definitely an adjustment it's not an adjustment as far as uh, on the court physically it's a mental adjustment yeah. it's it's a you know, understanding what your role would be off the bench—that that'll be the first time in my career I, I'd come off the bench. So I knew it would be a, an adjustment. Um, so, you know, I, I, I tackled it head on. I, I sort of identified it as a challenge, a new challenge that I could really tackle in my career. And I thought I did. I thought I tackled it. I thought I embraced it. It takes some humbling to to do something like right. that because I feel like I've 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 had a a very good career. I've accomplished a a good amount of things in my nba career but to win at that highest level in the nba sometimes you have to sacrifice and i saw a team in boston where you know it was a great locker room i'd known some of the guys in the locker room and it was a it was a group of guys that were willing to eat sacrificed in their own way so i knew i wanted to be a part of that
1: yeah so you're also a vice president of the nba players association what led you to that role and um what does that entail
0: this will be my Fourth year as as one of the vice presidents. There are five of us, I believe, okay. uh, vice presidents, and there are about I think about eight, either eight or nine positions on the executive committee um, that I that I fall under that represent the four hundred fifty the four hundred fifty NBA players. So we are the executive committee of the players' union, and um, I've really enjoyed it. You know, for me, I I saw it as an opportunity not only to lead and be a voice for the players, but um, an opportunity to learn and uh, learn the business side of the of basketball, what goes on behind closed doors rather than being just so focused on the game and uh, working hard and, you know, everything that goes into, you know, the, the, the finished product on the court. I wanted to understand the ins and outs of the business just in case after I'm done playing, I can really understand it, whether I'm in a position to advocate for players after I'm done playing, whatever, whatever it may be, I would be ready for that and, and had some experience in that way. So it's a position I've really enjoyed. I've learned a lot. We actually just renegotiated the the CBA, which is in some very simple terms. It's the new contract as as far as how players will get paid, how the money will go up, uh, the TV deals. I mean, all of that is right. is uh, you know basically a part of the negotiation. It's the it's the PA and the NBA agreeing on this on the CBA. So we just renegotiated that, which was a huge success for us. Um, we thought we got a good deal and. You know I learned a lot out of that
1: process as well. Yeah. Well, congratulations on that. What are some of the key issues um, facing the players association? I and mean, what do your colleagues care the most about?
0: One of the things I've I, I hear a lot and one of the things I've observed is, you know, the as far as a union, you know, we get labeled as one of the 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 MBPA gets labeled as one of the best Unions, if not the best union in all of professional sports, really, we're very progressive. Uh, we a lot of the time we are gold standard as far as uh, the steps we're taking, the relationship we have with our counterpart in the NBA. They see us as peers, and w- we function as peers. We make decisions together. And I think in a lot of professional sports, you don't you don't have sort of that synergy between the NBA and the players' union that I think we have. Um, I think we've hired good leaders. I think we have just intelligent, thoughtful leaders on the committee that, that do represent the 450 well. and I, I, think we've, I think we've done a good job. I think we continue to uh, take steps every year. But, you know, the overall goal at the end of the day, you know, there are a lot of nuances of the CBA and a lot of nuances of the negotiations that happen between the NBA and the MBPA. The goal is to grow the pie, is to continue to grow the money and to make sure that the NBA and the players each get their fair share to keep the businesses going, to keep the players happy. And, you know, Adam Silver's job is, to be the voice for the owners of, of or the governors of each of the NBA teams, so to make sure that everybody feels heard on the players' side and the and the governor side, and continue to grow the pie in the in the best way possible, so that everybody can stay happy.
1: So, speaking of growing the pie and sharing it, um, college sports have changed quite a bit since you left, with the NIL and the transfer portal and um, Wondering, either from your time in college or your time with the NBA, and particularly on the Players Association, um, what are your thoughts about where college sports are now, and especially with respect to um, name, image, and likeness? Man,
0: um, the landscape has changed so much. It's For me, it's unrecognizable. I still don't know the entirety of the ins and outs of the, of the NIL deals and sort of the, the, the landscape in general. Um, of college sports now. But I, you know, I think they've taken a huge step, a step that I love that players can can benefit, you know, monetary-wise off of their name, image, and likeness. I think that was something that was has been missing for a long, long time. Right. Um, that all the athletes before, you know, we, I think, you know, we're, done a, we're really done a disservice by not being able to, to benefit from that. But I think they're going to have to, I think they're, at some point, the NCAA and colleges in general are going to have to possibly scale back because I know the transfer portal um has become a big thing. I yeah. I you know, I'm trying to be careful on what I say because I don't know the ins and outs. But, you know, I think that's become I think athletes nowadays in college are I would say slightly motivated to get into the transfer portal. As soon as something doesn't work out for you, you just yeah. up and leave. And there's a piece of that. I think for a lot of athletes that works, but I think there's a good number of them that once you see a challenge, once you see some adversity, you just pack your your bags up and you and you leave and you're off to the next situation. And the grass is usually not greener on the other side in right. pro sports and in college sports. So, um, you know, I think that is doing a disservice to some players that are able to just pick up and leave when things get hard. I think, you know, I think part of the college experience is learning to fight through adversity, learning to, you know, face adversity head on and figure out a way find, you know, problem solve. And I think a, a lot of college athletes nowadays are missing that opportunity because they are so easily able to just get up and leave.
1: Yeah, it's a hard balance, isn't it? I mean, you on yeah. the one hand, you want to give players the freedom to move if that's what's right for them. But sometimes restricting the freedom to move is in some respects in their best interest, even if even if it might right. not seem that way. Um Well, let's talk about outside of basketball. As I mentioned in the introduction, um, you've been involved in a a range of organizations and have pushed on a number of issues, whether it's related to educational access or literacy or um, health equality or access to clean water. Um, So first of all, thank you for all that you do. But second, how do you decide which issues to focus on, whether it's here or abroad? Because I know your work is both in this country and abroad
0: yeah you know, um I think it's sort of a for me a landscape that continues to change. you know, I think as you go through life, you have everybody says you have one purpose. I think you can have different purposes based on that that time period in your life um and early on, my parents took me to Africa when I was nine ten years old, took me and my brothers to Africa, West Africa, I went to Ghana, and we spent three weeks there and Um, over there as literally as a child, I I got to see poverty, you know, really, really bad poverty at a, at a young age and it, and it stuck with me. I wasn't really able to understand it, but I, I knew something made me uncomfortable when I was there and it was something that always stuck with me. So ever since then, I always wanted to one, go back to Africa and, and, you know, I was fascinated with, with the continent, but also make a change, make a difference. And, you know, I've had a lot of people you know, since I've done my, had my clean water efforts, say, why don't you do work here? Why don't you do working domestically clean water wise? Cause I don't, I don't do domestic clean water. I do domestic education right. work here. My response is, you know, one, I think the poverty there is worse if you, right. if you look at the poverty levels, but I also think that's where my heart is. That's always been where my heart is. That's where I was first taken and as a kid and, and felt those emotions of Empathy, you know, compassion, all those things, and, and really seeing people struggle on a level I had never seen or experienced before. And I, you know, as I got older, really being at UVA was what made me want to really approach clean water specifically, rather than food, rather than clothing, rather than health or sanitation. I really wanted to tackle clean water because I think it is the biggest necessity for people in our world. So that's what I've I've done. I have my uh, nonprofit, the Brogdon Family Foundation. To put it very simply, we've been digging wells for years now um, all over East Africa, mainly Tanzania and Kenya, and we've served hundreds of thousands of people. And it's been, I think, very impactful and very fulfilling, and it's helped a lot of people.
1: So let me ask you about the related topic of uh, athletes speaking out on issues of social justice or racial justice. Um, And you mentioned Muhammad Ali, who was obviously really outspoken. Um, and as a professional athlete, you have an unparalleled platform in some respects. Um, what are your thoughts generally about athletes and taking advantage of that platform? Because it's some people, um, you know, aren't fans of it, uh, and others think um, you're wasting an opportunity if you don't pursue it. How how do you wrestle with that in your in your own mind?
0: You know, early on in my career, years ago, I thought. Um, I thought we we have a responsibility as athletes. We have this platform to speak out for those that don't have the the light, the platform, the stage to, to speak on. And I'm at the point now in my career, I think over the past couple of years, I believe you do what you're comfortable with. I don't mm-hmm. think, I think there are people that don't want to lead from the front. They want to lead in other ways. Um, they don't want to, they don't want to speak out. That's not going to be how they impact the world. And for me, I've decided I am going to speak out on an, on injustice, on, Things that are that are not right, I'm going to speak out on them. I encourage athletes to speak out if they're comfortable, but I also encourage athletes to be as informed as possible. Because just because you are you are speaking out does not mean you are an expert in the subject or you are the most informed. I I, I want people to be prepared for everything that comes with the scrutiny that comes with speaking out. Because even as I've spoke out in my career at times, I, there's scrutiny. I face scrutiny from a lot of people that right. you know you don't know what you're talking about, you know, whatever. Um, and it's challenged me to be more informed uh, for the next opportunity. So, you know, that's that's been my stance as of, right. as of late.
1: Right. And what are the issues that you're most concerned about? So when you're going to speak out on something, is it are, is it consistent with a particular set of topics? The way your philanthropic work um, has focused a lot on clean water or is it injustices that you see and you feel like I could add my voice to this and it might make a difference? You know,
0: mine, um, since I've been in the NBA, my biggest focus as far as public speaking or speaking out um, has not as much been on my nonprofit and what drives me overseas as far as clean water. It's been more on social justice. It's been more on what impacts uh, my everyday life, my friends, my family, people in my community, people that look like me. That's been my biggest focus because no matter how much money you make, no matter what type of position you hold you're always going to be impacted by this. Um, still, I'm pulled over by the cops just because, right. uh, you know, they, they see a black man in a car with tinted windows. That that stuff still happens. Right. Um, and although I am treated different once they see who I am and they recognize me, yeah. then everything is good. But I that that it's always a constant reminder to me that this is an unjust society that we live right. in and, you know, black men and women don't deserve to go through this. Right. And it, it takes men and women like me that do have the platform to speak up to change that that situation.
1: Yeah. Amen. Um and I think you're exactly right that you're in a position to reach people who might not otherwise listen.
0: Yeah. I think um you know whether or not we are uh the most informed as athletes, I think people listen. I think politicians listen. I think people of influence listen to us. Right. Um, so that's why I encourage you know people in my position to be as informed as possible because people are listening. No matter what you put out there, it, it, you are going to be heard. Make sure it's 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 creating positive change in our society and and for the people you want to impact.
1: Right. Well, and you know if you're talking about personal experience too, I mean you're you're talking from a position of knowledge. This stuff will never change, and then my kids will go
0: through it. So I I want to create the best world possible. Yeah.
1: All right. So let's go backwards and then forwards for the last couple of questions. Back to your time at UVA. Am, am I right? You lived on the range your fifth year.
0: I lived on the range my fifth year. Um the range was a great experience. I met a lot of uh really amazing people and leaders, but there were some rough nights on the range. That's what people don't talk about.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to talk about them, Malcolm?
0: <laughs> this is gonna turn into a therapy session. So no, I, I I I really I really didn't enjoy it. Um I I really stepped up on a limb because I usually don't do things like that. Uh it was really out of my comfort zone, but um, I had people around me that were like, look, you can, you know, not only will it add on to your legacy at, at the university, but um, you have the chance to do something special that uh, a lot of people don't get a chance to do while they're, while they're in school at UVA. So I, I, I'm really thankful that I did it.
1: So the forward looking question, um, life after professional basketball, how often do you think about it as just something you're putting off to the future? Um, or do you have a, 10-point plan for what you're going to do once you leave the NBA?
0: I'm definitely somewhere in between. It's something I think about very often. I probably think about it every single day. Um, I do not have a 10-point plan. Right now, life after basketball for me, I think, looks like a move to Europe uh, with my family. I think we we re- that's something we really want to do, I think, mm-hmm. for, my, for my girls, having them learn multiple languages, having them be exposed to people outside of, of the United States. Um, different cultures, having different experiences, because for me, you know, I look back to 25 years ago when I got to go to Africa, uh, it really shaped who I am. And I would uh, be doing my kids a disservice if I didn't allow them that opportunity as well. So moving to Europe immediately after, whether it's London, Amsterdam, Zurich, those are three of the cities we love, me and my wife love, but, um, you know, moving there and and allowing my kids and then me and my wife to Experience something different and challenging us to to grow in a different environment.
1: Right. That sounds like a good plan, even if it doesn't have ten points. It's yeah, like right. a good plan.
0: Right. 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 That's like a one point plan.
1: Inside UVA is a production of WTJU ninety one point one FM and the Office of the President at the University of Virginia. Inside UVA is produced by Jaden Evans, Ariane Balu, Mary Garner McGee, and Matt Weber. Special thanks to Maria Jones and McGregor McCants. Our music is turning to you from Blue Dot Sessions. You can listen and subscribe to Inside UVA on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back soon with another conversation about the life of the university.